Well, I want to start by speaking to you about self-examination. Self-examination, uh, how you think about yourself. And I want, I want to say that having an accurate view of yourself, I reckon, is one of the most difficult things that you can do in life. Uh, being able to read your own life, see yourself clearly, uh, is very, very difficult. Our perspective is moulded and shaped by a whole bunch of things, moods, emotions, histories, backgrounds, so on and so forth. So it makes it very difficult. Let me illustrate this for you. When I was uh, around year five or year six, I began to, to become obsessed with music. And last time I talked about piracy, I gave up piracy and I thought, music, that's what I want to do. I, I just loved music. Now, it was a classic time of, of music in the world. We're talking 1992, 93, Vanilla Ice, MC Hammer, Paula Abdul, Sinead This is We'll put it on the Spotify playlist over lunch. Terrific times, great songs. And I would sing enthusiastically, loudly, commonly, all the time. I ended up thinking, you know what? Maybe I will be a famous singer when I grow up. That's what I want to do. But then my parents did something which wrecked it all. Jerks. They bought me a cassette player which had the ability to record sound. So I got the blank cassette and I put it in and I pressed... Sorry, if you're under 40, a cassette is this thing. <laughs> it's like your iPhone, but you can't take photos with it and, um, or take phone calls with it. It was really... <laughs> so I put this thing in and, you know, you would, do, you, do you remember this? You'd press play and record at the same time. Push it in, it was a bit difficult. And then I sung. I want to stop, collaborate. And li- anyway, I'll, I'll do that later. That's been a- Some of you know, if you know, you know. And... Um, I, I sung and I spoke. Then I rewound and I listened. And this was the first time I'd ever heard my own voice. I had thought I sounded like, um, you know, Daniel Johnson Silver, Silverchair, but I actually sounded like Andrew Johns from the Newcastle Knights, you know? <laughs> I thought I sounded like Tom Jones, but I actually sounded like Tommy Radonikus. Like, I just... There's got to be more. Anyway, I I, I was devastated hearing my own voice. I was like, someone has come into my room. An idiot has come into my room because he sounds terrible. Who is this person? Now, that was just the speaking. Then I got to the singing. I realized quickly, oh my goodness. It turns out I'm not who I think I am. My perception is awry. There's a difference between reality and, and self-perception. Now, do you know why that happens, by the way? There's a, I looked it up. Um, there's a scientific reason. It's very straightforward. Uh, when we hear our voices, we're hearing them from the inside and the outside, and it produces a volume pitch which is a bit lower and a bit richer. So we're like, mm, yes, I sound amazing. Uh, but in reality, of course, we sound like the way that we sound. And it is a very disconcerting feeling, isn't it, when, you're in, when you hear it for the first time? You're like, that's not what I sound. That is what you sound like. Now, I want to say the exact same thing happens in life, doesn't it? exact same thing. It's very, very difficult, very, very hard for us to see ourselves clearly. Having an accurate self-examination means confronting the possibility that we're not who we say we are. We're not who we think we are. We don't come off the way that we want to come off. Actually, there's other things about us that are very, very tricky and difficult and unpleasant. And, and that can actually turn up our entire lives upside down. So it's just easier not to even think about it, isn't it? As Ben said, we're um, finishing off our series in 2 Corinthians Today in 2 Corinthians chapter 13. Please have that part of the Bible in front of you as we, as we look at that today. And um, as we do so, 
Uh, right in the center of our reading, you would have heard it. The Apostle Paul, the author of Corinthians, 2 Corinthians and 1, 2 Corinthians, um, he gives everyone who reads this letter a challenge. And we see it in verse 5. What does he say? Examine yourselves. Do you see it? Examine yourselves. But not examine your singing ability. Not examine your career prospects, your life happiness. Not examine, who am I really? Where is my life going? No, no, no. Examine yourselves about something of much deeper significance. Examine yourselves about whether or not you are truly in the faith. Or as we would put it in our language today, ask yourself the question, am I really a Christian? Are you really a Christian? If you claim the title, the most privileged of titles, Christian. Really? How do you know? You sure? Is there any possibility that you're not, even though you think you are? Well, the answer to these questions, um, and I, I want to say this question is so important. We're actually spending the next three weeks looking at this kind of topic, knowing for sure certainty. The answer to these questions is found in our Bible reading today. Let me give you a bit of that context so we know where we're at. The Apostle, as you would, if you've been with us the last few weeks, you'll know Paul, who's writing to the Corinthians. This is a church infiltrated with false teachers and, and, and um, false uh, leaders. So Paul, since chapter 11 onwards, has been establishing his own credibility, laying out his resume. If you like, think of it this way. He has been testing himself to them, showing them that he is worthy of being listened to because he's speaking the truth. But now... Right here, final chapter, he flips the table, or he seems to. Because now he says, I've been testing myself, proving myself to you. Now you prove yourself to yourself. Examine yourself. If they are Christians, well, then they should be able to do two things. One, that will verify that he is a good apostle, a good teacher, that he is who he says he is, the one who's teaching the true gospel, because if they believe, he's the one who taught them what they believe, and that's verification of his credibility. But not only that, the challenge deep at the heart of what Paul is doing is something that's actually repeated through scripture in several parts of the Bible, that one of the best things that we can do as Christian people is consider the reality, the authenticity of our faith. It's not something we need to do every day. We don't have to wake up every morning and go, am I a Christian? Am I a Christian? But it is something, a healthy thing, a good thing, a godly thing, for us to to put down the binoculars, looking at other people, and to consider ourselves genuinely, honestly, and ask ourselves that question. Now, how do we do that? Well, um, the passage uh, then goes on very helpfully, I will say, to give us a couple of tests. A couple of tests um, which we can give to ourselves um, to to help us work out one way or the other where we land. So what I want to do this morning, I hope, is uh, simple and engaging. We're going to look at, um, there's two tests in particular. Look at both of these tests the passage gives us, the the self-tests, you know, uh, about whether or not we really are Christians. And then take a step back and and look at the evidence. Uh, look Look at the results and consider if there's one way of knowing or another where we're really at. Um, most of our time will be spent in verse 5, so that's going to be on the screen there. But yeah, bring your Bible along. It's good to have that in front of you as well. And we will be referencing elsewhere in the Bible uh, throughout this talk as well. Um, the first test is actually the first sentence of verse 5. So let me read it for you again. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. The first test, are you in the 
faith. Now, what does that mean? Well, the word faith is an interesting one. It's got a whole bunch of different variations and definitions. Um, In the Bible, 99% of the time, if you hear the word faith, it means trust. Trust in the promises of God. Trust in Jesus' death and resurrection for your sins. Trust. But in this context, that's not what it means. When the word faith has the precursor of the, in this sense, it's not talking about trust. What it's talking about is the Christian faith. Are you in the Christian faith? What does that mean? Do you agree to the core, not just the core, the all teachings of what the Bible says about life? Do you hold to the truths that the Bible presents? Um, Now, the Bible speaks about a lot of different things. And you will know there's a bunch of different denominations. We disagree about some things. But there are several core truths which, if you disagree with, oh, you cannot be a Christian. What sort of things? We see some of them in the passage. First of all, truths about God, his character, his nature, and who he is. Look at verse 14. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. What do we have there? The Trinity. God, three persons in one. If you don't believe in the Trinity, you can't be a Christian. Verse 4. Jesus Christ, crucified in weakness, that lives by God's power. Jesus Christ died on the cross, rose from the dead. He did so for your sin, to, to, to substitute himself for your punishment. He, he reigns and rules today. He is God. If you don't agree with that, you can't be a Christian. Throughout the rest of the passage, God is gracious, he's loving, he's kind, he's merciful. These truths are truths about God. That's how the Bible tells us. What you know about God comes from the Bible. But it's not just truths about God, it's also truths about yourself. Truths about yourself. Look at chapter 12, the end of chapter 12. The end of chapter 12 talks a lot about sin. Why? Because the Bible presents as reality that the diagnosis of your soul is that you are a sinner. We need to repent and turn to God. Not to justify what we do, but to repent of it. Verse 4, we need to trust in Jesus' death and resurrection. He is the only hope that you have. Now, what does all of this mean? Well, this might sound so straightforward and so basic, but it's so important for us to get. This is what it means. God's truth is what it is. Did you get that? God's truth is what it is, and he desires that you believe it. It's not up for argument or debate. You can say, I don't agree with those things. Fine, but you ain't a Christian. Okay, It's not cut and paste, pick and choose. God's truth is what it is. It does not change. It does not mold. It does not merge. It does not shape. It, it doesn't move with fashions, with cultures. It's eternal. Several years ago, my wife and I lived in uh, Parramatta. What a dump. And um, it's not actually, I love Parramatta. It's beautiful. Just the football team's a dump, though. And um, that's true, they're terrible. Uh, anyway, Parramatta, our favorite restaurant was uh, the, the Make Your Own Pizza Company. Okay? And uh, I, love, I love pizza, it's my favorite food. But I particularly love the Make Your Own Pizza Company because I have the palate of a six year old. Okay? So I'm a very fussy eater and I don't like mushrooms, I don't like olives, I don't like capsicum, I don't blah, 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 blah. So, yeah, it's a pretty straightforward process. You go up, you queue up, you know, and th- they put the toppings on that you want and they make it for you. You sit there, perfect. However, a couple of years ago, my wife and I, we moved to the UK, we lived there for a few years, and, and on holidays, we would go to Italy. 
Now, my wife is Italian, so we weren't going to like the McPizza restaurants. We were going to the authentic. Anyone here been to Italy? Oh, Italy. Oh, my goodness. And that pizza was out of this world, the best I've ever tasted. But I certainly remember my first in her little village. <laughs> I remember we went to this you know, pizzeria or whatever. We sat there and I look at the menu and I see a pizza I really want. And I say, ah, oh, to, the, to the waitress, sorry, can I get that but without olives? And she looked at me like I'd run over her cat. She was like... <laughs> and she said, you ready? We cook, you eat. Like it or lump it, this is what it is. If you don't like it, <laughs> now I'm not saying that about faith. If you don't like it, please stay. Stay, don't go. <laughs> okay. If I do want to say, do you see the point? God's truth is what it is. And it's crucial you agree with it and abide to it. It's crucial that you agree, even if you don't like it. There's parts of the Bible I don't like. You know which parts I don't like? The bits which says, love your enemy. Turn the other cheek. I hate that. I could go on. And yet it's holding to it as a solid core truth. It's essential. Now, this has been so important over church history, actually, for thousands of years, um, that the church developed a whole bunch of ways um, so that we could all know what these truths are, these essential ones. Um, there's two in particular, two words that we don't use very commonly in today's language, but the two words are creeds. Have you heard of the creeds before? The Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, the Creed. There's a whole bunch of them. That I don't know. Um, and these are... Words that Christians say together, audibly, out loud, which are big statements of faith. Now, we're doing a communion later, and we'll have the opportunity to, to do that together, like Christians all around the world have been doing for thousands. It's a wonderful thing. The other thing is catechisms. Has anyone heard of a catechism before? And that's like a little call and response, question and answer, um, memory tool of learning the truths about Jesus. Um, and, you know, you might do that with children, do it with adults. Um, what is our only hope in life and death? Well, you don't have to. We can do it later. Um, that's fine. Um, so you have these things that affirm these basic truths. Why? Because it matters. The truth matters. Forget what culture says about truth. They're at war with truth. God's truth is what it is. And to be a Christian, you've got to hold to it. So that's test number one. Test number two, also in verse five. Have a look. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith... Test yourself, and then, do you not realize that Christ Jesus is in you? Unless, of course, you fail the test. The second test is Jesus Christ alive in you. Are you in fellowship with Christ? Now, what on earth does that mean? I grew up in a church, you know, and I'd hear a lot of that. Uh, invite Jesus into your heart. Jesus is in, you know, and I just was like, what do you mean? Hello? What do you mean? Like there's little Jesus dancing around. What are we talking about? Well, there's another part of the Bible which really clearly defines this for us, and it's the book of Ephesians. So can you go there with me in your Bible? It's Ephesians chapter 3. We're going to verse 16. And remember, what's the question? What does it mean that Jesus Christ lives in your heart? That's the question. You got that? And so we want to look at this passage to answer that question. What does it mean that Jesus Christ lives in your heart? 
What does that phrase even mean? Let me, verse 16 to verse 18. I pray, and this is Paul, the same guy who's writing to a different church, but same guy. I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the Lord's holy people, to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. Now, there's a whole bunch of things in there, but there's one word in particular I want you to notice. It's the word love. What does it mean to have Jesus Christ living in your heart? It's not locational. It's relational. Did you get that? It's not, it's not locational. It's Jesus lives in you from the moment you become a Christian. His spirit, the spirit of Christ, God's Holy Spirit. The Bible makes it really clear that when you put your trust in Jesus, death and resurrection on your behalf, when you become a Christian, Jesus' spirit, the Holy Spirit, lives in you. He's alive in you, loving you, telling you of his love. Letting you know of his love and, and, and pushing you to love him in return. Now, the consequences of this are, are staggering and, and, um, and very important. And, and has direct consequences on test number one, doesn't it? Because what this means is that you can know the entire Bible back to front, upside down, in multiple, multiple languages, off by heart. You can, you can repeat the creeds and the catechisms till the cows come home. But if Jesus Christ does not live in you, you are not a Christian. You are not a Christian. And look at verse 19. Verse 19 says this so clearly for us of Ephesians 3. And to know this love that surpasses knowledge. What makes someone a Christian is whether Jesus Christ is alive in them. And his spirit will confirm the truths that the Bible says about life. Now, Jesus Christ dwells within you when you become a Christian to trust in the, in the gospel. And that means it's very possible to call yourself a Christian, to behave in a Christian way, to, to um, tick the census box Christian, to have a Christian family. Let me put it this way. It is absolutely possible to be utterly convinced to the bottom of your soul that you're a Christian. And yet on the last day, have Jesus Christ look at you and say, away from me, I never knew you. Not willful lying, oh, I'm a Christian. I'm not really, but it's possible to think you are and not be one. So let's press pause and step back. What are these two tests? Number one, are you in the faith? Number two, are you in fellowship with Christ? Examine yourself. Take, take five seconds now. Examine yourself. Do you pass these tests? Well, it's hard to know, isn't it? And the reason it's hard to know is because self-examination is incredibly difficult. It's very difficult to be the examined and the examiner, to mark yourself fairly. It's very, very difficult. And, and what happens when we're in those positions, and I want to say when we have opportunities to self-reflect and to self-examine, 
is we veer one of two ways. We're either far, far too kind to ourselves, I'm great, or far, far too critical of ourselves, I've lost it, I've stuffed up, I can't, I'm unlovable, I'm done. And so what that means for many people, and I want to say this is a plague that infects Christendom, is that there's many, many people who are Christians who live in a constant state of uncertainty. A constant state of uncertainty about their faith, the veracity of their faith, the truthfulness of it all, the certainty of their assurance of their salvation. They do not know for sure. And so there's a, there's a continual um, anxiety and, and fear. Have I lost my faith? If I've sinned like this, I've lost it. If I doubt like that, I've got to do this, I've got to do that. And I know people, genuine Christians, who live in this way that it just creates this, this world of doubt and uncertainty that shakes the foundations of their very life. It actually shapes how they end up viewing God. The God who holds them at arm's length and says, maybe. And so you ask someone, are you a Christian? And they'll go, yeah, yeah, I'm a Christian. But then you can ask them, are you going to heaven? And they'll say, ooh, I hope so. At best, I hope so. But I want to say to you this morning that I don't hope I'm a Christian. I don't hope I'm going to heaven. I know I'm a Christian. And I know I'm going to heaven. And it might be possible that you're like, gee, the ego in this guy. What? But I want to say, no, no, no. God wants you to know. He doesn't want you to live in a state of uncertainty. He wants you to know that you're not a Christian if you're not a Christian. And he wants you to know that you are a Christian if you are. You see, the thing about these tests, test in the faith, test of fellowship, is that while they are, in one sense, subjective ones that only you know, they also do produce evidence. Are you with me? How you answer those questions... The truth of the results of those questions produces evidence, objective, tangible evidence that we can look at, that you can look at, that you can assess honestly now, that you can assess to truly discover the truth, the reality about where you stand with God. Now, what what am I talking about? Look at verse 5 again. You'll see it here in verse 5. Do you not realize, he says, Paul says, that Christ is in you? Do you not realize? Now, what does that mean? He's not saying, you are a Christian, I promise, trust me. What's he, what's he implying? If Christ Jesus lives in you, you will realize it. You can realize it. He will make his presence known. He will make his presence known. How? How? Well, I want to point out three ways. Three ways um, from the passage and from elsewhere in the Bible. Three of these evidences, which when we're being honest and doing a true self-reflection, we can look at ourselves and look at our lives and assess our lives and go, man, I'm, I see that or I don't. And these evidences are, are, are all about your life. How you feel, how you act, and how you think. So let me show you them. First one is how you feel. The first bit of evidence uh, of whether or not Jesus Christ lives within you, is alive in your heart, is because you feel 
his presence. Do you feel his presence? Wait. <laughs> I do not mean you get goosebumps when you hear a song that you like. Okay? Well, that's great that you do, but that doesn't mean you're a Christian. That's not what we're talking about. I do not mean you feel him like, you know, if you, you know, there's a haunted house. Oh, there's something going on I don't understand. That's not what I mean by feel. Feel isn't about emotional reactive feelings, but rather a conscious awareness. Conscious awareness. Now, you don't have to go there. I'm going to chuck it on the screen. Romans, Romans uh, chapter 8 has a great uh, uh, um, definition and clarification of what this means. So look at this, Romans 8, verse 15. It'll be on the screen, I hope. Here we go. The spirit you received, which is what? The spirit of Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit, that you become, what we're talking about. The spirit you received does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship or daughtership. What that means is that you call God Father if you truly are a Christian. You are adopted into God's family. Now listen. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. You have the privilege of calling God your Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. God gives you inward assurance that he is your Father. If indeed he is, and you are his child. How do you know? Well, I want to put it this way. How do you feel when you just heard that truth? How does the knowledge of God's adoption of you into his family make you feel? Is it an empty biblical fact that you're storing away for a Bible quiz one day? Or is it the single most important thing you could ever possibly know? The Christian consciousness is the movement of facts to faith on fire. Now, I don't mean that you're weeping all the time. Or you hear the gospel and you can't possibly talk about it. It's just over. I'm not saying like that. But I'm saying that deep within your soul, does it mean anything to you that Jesus Christ died on the cross and rose from the dead for you? Or is it just a fact, something that you know that you're meant to do and that's what you do? Or do you know from deep in your soul that you are a sinner worthy of nothing but punishment and yet Jesus took that for you and that has changed your entire life. That means your eternity is secure and that is the most beautiful, most wonderful, most precious truth that you have. However you choose to express that. Oh, I was a fake Christian for most of my life. So I know what it's like to, to live in the world of facts. Yeah, Jesus died and rose from the dead. The book of James, Jesus' brother James, James chapter 2, one of my favorite verses, says, Oh, you believe, you know, you believe Jesus rose from the dead? Good! Even demons believe that and shudder. Is your faith on fire? I don't mean emotional like that. I mean, does it mean anything? Second, second piece of evidence. The knowledge of the presence of Jesus Christ in your life leads to a change in how you act, in how you behave. You see, the spirit of Jesus is at work within you to reproduce the character of Jesus in you. His character, which is most clearly seen in the way that you behave, the way that you live. That, that we are striving for perfection. That does not mean we're going to be perfect. And the word restore in, in chapter, chapter 13 here, that's what that word means, perfection. It doesn't mean we will have uh, perfection here in this earth, but rather that we are in the progress of becoming like Jesus continually. 
that we are growing and maturing, that we're becoming more like Christ by degree, day by day by day. Now, I think we see this in two major ways in the way that we act. Um, uh, one kind of positive, one kind of negative. I'll, I'll start with the, um, the negative one. Oh, it's not negative, that's the wrong way to put it. The first way that we see this is your awareness of and hatred of sin. Does it bother you that you sin? When you sin? And I don't mean guilt. Are you guilty? Anyone can feel guilt. Guilt means I've done the wrong thing. I might get caught. Uh, no, no. Conviction of sin means I've, I've, I've wronged my Father in heaven. You see that difference? I've wronged my Father in heaven. I've sinned. Does it bother you that you sin? Do you excuse your sin continually, minimize it, and maximize others? I know that game. I'm fluent in that game. Do you balance the scales out to yourself and go, ah, well, what I do is not that bad, what everyone else is. Ah, well, God can't possibly mean that. Then that's an old book. He doesn't mean that. He must mean this. Or do you actually repent of your sin? Does, does every time, it might take a day, it might take a week, it might take longer than that, but does it every time come back to the place that I've, I've, I've wronged my father? I'm not excusing it, I'm not justifying it. Father, forgive me. Do you have a divine discontent with the presence of sinfulness in your life? You see, the struggle against sin is one of those things that can make us deeply discouraged. You know, the continual redoing of the same sin over and over again and the continual fight and the battle of it and, and, and the endless feeling of, I'm not good. Oh, he must be so sick of me. I can't, I'm so, and you can end up feeling, well, I can't be a Christian because I keep sinning. Now, my dear friends, hear me. We need to fight and kill our sin. But do not think that the struggle against sin is evidence of the Spirit's absence. The struggle against your sin is evidence of the Spirit's presence and work in your life, working away at you, convicting you, growing you. It's not perfection. And for a lot of us, it's a very slow progress, isn't it? All of us. But inch by inch by inch, we're fighting it. We're trying to kill it. Now, the second way that I think we see this in the way that we behave is the creation of positive, wonderful, godly, good desires within you. In my own life, I lived my whole life, as I said, brought up in a Christian family, but I had no interest in the Bible. The Bible, uh, I used to smash cockroaches in my room, and I thought nothing of it. Um, and, and, and I did not think about God. I took the Lord's name in vain. Um, I'd swear like that. I'd, uh, uh, you know, um, uh, when I heard Christian music, like I was just like, I just, all these said prayer, nothing. I could not care less about Christian things until one day, I did. I can't explain why I did. I started to think about God and I couldn't stop. I haven't stopped. The Bible became this thing that is still really hard to read. But I want to. And I, I've been fed by it in ways I can't articulate. Prayer is still really hard, but I know it's worth and value to me. As I think about God, he's not the distant uncle in the sky who I go to to bribe to get something good. He's my father in heaven, and he means more to me than anything. The thought of taking Jesus' name in vain 
Well, that's part of my battle against sin when other people do it, I've got to be honest. Church? Oh, I spent my whole life making up sicknesses to get out of church. If you need help doing that, come see me. I've got a bunch of excuses. I took more toilet breaks and sermons than you've had hot breakfasts. Let me tell you. Oh, he's up. Yep, I've got to go. Sorry, yeah, I'm out here. And now this is... This, whether here, another, is the most precious thing to me. Has that happened to you? So how you... What have we had? How you act, the evidence of that. How you feel. But there is one other. The presence of Jesus Christ in your heart is constantly at work to transform not just how you feel and how you act, but also how you think. How you think about all of life. How you understand life. Both this life and the next. What what am I talking about? The presence of Jesus Christ in your heart confirms eternal realities. That this world is not your home. That this life is not all there is. That there is a life to come worth far more than this life here. And it allows you over time, slowly, slowly, but over time, to let go of of, of your enslavement to the things of this world. To your desire for public acclaim and popularity and and the house, the spouse, the car, that these things are the most important things. But to cling to eternal realities as your mind is renewed day by day to be like Jesus. Eternal truths. They, they, they hold themselves deep within you to transform everything as you view your life, the way you think. And I want to say that the way you think, understanding your life, this life and the next that way, it changes everything about how you live your life. Let me, let me illustrate this for you. Um, as many of you will know, um, I was in the army for a bunch of years. I did a bunch of scary things while I was in the army. Um, but by far and away, the most terrifying thing was this. Um, this is called Hewitt. Now, before I explain what that is, has anyone done Hewitt before? Well, Kelvin, you have. None of you. Oh, let me give you some information. Hewitt stands for Helicopter Underwater Escape Training. It's as fun as it sounds, okay? Pretty much what happens is this. I'll tell you what happened to me. I joined the Army. My unit would fly in helicopters a lot. And because helicopters have this terrible habit of falling out of the sky, um, what happens is, if you fall out of the sky onto land, you're done. But if you fall into water, there's actually quite a good chance that you may survive. However, obviously there's a lot going on when the helicopter falls into water. You know? So they train you of how to get out of the helicopter before you do it to prepare you for when it's happening. Now, I don't know any of this as I turn up to this thing called Hewitt. I'm like, what's Hewitt? And I just turn up, and to my horror, I see this thing, and I realise slowly as I watch and listen that this is my worst nightmare in the flesh. Why? Because I can't swim. I hate the water. I hate helicopters. All of these things are combined. (laughs) Here's what they do. They strap you into this contraption. Click. They put a helmet on. They lower the helicopter body into the water. So you're underwater, strapped in. They turn it upside down. Did I mention? They blindfold you before you go in. So you are blindfolded, underwater, strapped in, in a helicopter shell. You have to then wait there for like whatever seconds it is before you... Undo yourself and have, to, and they're training you to be able to get it, find the, the window or the, the door so that you can do it by instinct. 
talking about smashing an ant with an atom bomb. I'd rather die in the helicopter. I don't want to do this. This is the worst thing ever. As I'm there watching this thing, I can feel the sweat. Just, no, it wasn't tangible. It was very hot, but I'm just there going, oh, I'm really sick. I don't want to be here. It's like one of my dad's sermons again. I was like, no, no, thanks. I don't want to be here anymore. I want to get out. I don't want to. But as I walk into the helicopter, there's something that happens that changes everything. You can see that there's the guys uh, inside the helicopter, but you can also see the guys in the water. Now, those guys in the water are trained divers. And I knew one of them. And he saw me. I mean, I was whiter than, you know, I was whiter than the Central Coast. I was white. I was, I was white. And I, um, I, I had this, I was just, you know, I was going to, and he came over and he goes, Oi, Jeno, which one? Oi, Dave, Dave. I'll be next year. It's going to be okay. I'll be next year. Turns out, they put you in, the divers are there. If you're in trouble, you do this. <laughs> or you, you know, that. <laughs> Suddenly, the colour filled my face again. Everything. Why? Because I knew that no matter what, no matter what happened, no matter how I felt, no matter my anxiety, no matter what scenario would, undertake, would take place, he was with me. I was going to be Okay. My friends, Jesus Christ in you changes everything. What does that mean? Jesus Christ lives inside of you and he is never leaving. No matter what happens in your life, no matter how much you suffer and endure in the pain and agony of suffering, of death, of disease, of heartache, of heartbreak, of estrangement, of relational breakdown. When you're angry at him and you doubt him, have you done that? Shout at him, what are you doing? No matter how far you fall in sinfulness, when you're utterly convinced and persuaded that God must be so sick of you, oh, here he goes again. He must be tired of you. He must hate you. Jesus lives in you. And he loves you. And he's never, ever leaving. He's not a tenant. He lives there. He's taken up ownership and residence. Jesus says it this way in John chapter 6. All those the Father give me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. I will never drive away. So you can have full confidence that he will never let you go. Why? Verse 4. Because in verse 4, we learn that he was crucified in weakness that lives by God's power. Jesus died for you. What does that mean to you? He rose from the dead for you. What does that mean to you? Does it mean nothing, <laughs> something, or everything? On the cross, Jesus didn't let go. He took hold of the Father's wrath that we deserve. For him to let go of us would mean requiring to go back to the cross, back to the grave, to do it all over again. Jesus will not let you go. He is in you. He lives with you. He's walking with you. And he will be with you to the end. 
Because, of course, the end is not an end at all, but a beginning. That means that if you're in the faith, no matter who you are, no matter where you've been, if you're in the faith and Jesus Christ is in you, my friends, rest. Have confidence. Assurance. He is always at work for your good. Your salvation is assured. So, my friends, allow me, as I've gone over time, to very quickly say this. Are you a Christian? Have you repented of your sin and trusted in Jesus' death and resurrection on your behalf? Does Jesus Christ live in you? If you have done those things, then God's word is clear. You are a Christian. And you can't lose it. It's in you. But if not, if you're here today and you're not certain, you're not sure, which doesn't mean you're not, but it means you need to clarify. Or maybe you've realised, maybe even today for the first time, or have you known for a while, I'm not. Or you know straight out, I'm not a Christian. May I encourage you, become a Christian. It's the best thing I've ever done in my life. In a few moments, we're going to take communion. We remember the death and resurrection of Jesus on our behalf. And what an amazing thing for us to dwell on. And maybe for you on the day that you become a Christian, as you take this bread and, and the juice, that he did this for you. He stood up for you so you can stand up for him. Let me pray.